Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 99 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's show, longtime mental health professional Dr. Larry Decker shares his knowledge and insight gained from decades of service to veterans. Who do you most admire throughout history? Preferably somebody that you don't know personally. The most inspiring person that you can think of, who is that? And think about who that is. Okay, you're looking at yourself. You wouldn't recognize what's in that person if you didn't have it in you. What is it about that person that you admire so much? That's you. That's yourself. You're seeing someone else who's better able to be you than you are. It's not a matter of copying or role-playing or anything like that. It's not that superficial. This goes right to the core of who we are as a person, who we are as an individual. And you guys have a step up. You've started that whole process. And you've got to keep doing it. But and the, the way that you can do that, look at somebody that you most admire. And then realize that quality that you see in them is in you. Otherwise, you'd never see it. You wouldn't recognize it. You wouldn't know about it. People would tell you about it. And you'd shrug your shoulders. You wouldn't know what they meant. But because you know what they mean, that's you. Make sure to check out the show notes for this episode at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST099. If you're a longtime listener, share the show if you think it might be helpful. Make sure to hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice, which can be found at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash platforms. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about veteran mental health. 
Um, as we're approaching our 100th episode, and I've had a lot of really great guests on, uh, veterans themselves, um, people who are um, in organizations that are supporting veterans, uh, and like my guest today, mental health professionals that have been working for veterans, working with veterans for decades. And so my guest today is, uh, is Dr. Larry Decker. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dwayne. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, uh, of accepting my invitation, but then also a lot of the communication um, that, uh, that we've had leading up to this. And um, as you mentioned before we got started, uh, this is something I think that both of us can talk about for many, many hours. But before we get into your work, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay, sure. Um, I've been working with veterans for probably a bit over 40 years now. Uh, initially, I was, um, I got, uh, my postdoctorate was with the Long Beach Veterans Administration Hospital uh, in the spinal cord injury wards. I did a clinical postdoc there along with uh, USC. And uh, then I, I just went into teaching full time and uh, taught for a state university for several years. And uh, then eventually moved around the country a little bit, uh, had a wife, I still do, and uh, two boys, and uh, came back finally to uh, Santa Barbara and uh, was working as an administrator at a job. I, uh, I'm i really a terrible administrator. Uh, so we all recognized that fact and uh, had a mutual understanding of uh, leaving that position. Uh but at the time, I had also had a private practice going. I had a uh, a former Marine in there, although I guess they don't call them former Marines anymore. They just call them Marines. Uh, so he was a Marine. He had been a caisson. I, I didn't know much. I didn't know much about uh, the war except for the fact that I protested against it. And he was uh, starting what we called back then rap groups, uh, which was just sort of a drop-in. A group in which uh, guys had a very free wheeling, as you may know. And uh, so he asked me if I would mind coming by and helping. <laughs> I said, me? Why do you want me? Uh, you know, I'm, I have really no experience whatsoever with the military or with Vietnam or with any of you guys, really. He goes, no, no. He says, it'd be really great. Okay. So, you know, fine. So I came that night, and uh, it was it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. When I walked into that room and I saw about those twenty guys sitting there, wow, it, it was really uh, amazing to me. And so I spent two years just being a member of the group, and not really trying to do anything because you really couldn't get much done. Because, like I say, it was a drop-in group, and uh, so each week it was different. And so very, uh, there was a lot of emotion and there was a lot of expression that happened, which was what most of those guys really needed was just being able just to say something rather than having to hide and be afraid. Because as you know, when they came back, there was what's called sanctuary trauma. I mean, you come back hoping it's going to be a nice place. <laughs> no, it was just the opposite for most of those guys. They just one underground and uh, didn't tell anybody, oh, yeah, well, you know, I went to Germany when I was in the military or, or something like that. And then at the end of a couple of years, uh, they asked me to, uh, about four or five guys in there, 
who had health insurance. <laughs> so they asked me to start a private group, which would be closed. I said, sure, let's, let's, let's do that. And that's when it started and uh, in a real way. And uh, then the regional manager of the vet center system called me and wanted me to start a vet center in Santa Barbara. Great. Okay, sure. And that began my career with the Department of Veterans Affairs, which, of course, the vet center is a part of. There's just another system within the, the VA. And I worked for them for 25 years, uh, retired from the VA, and then they offered me a contract. And so I came back as a federal contractor, worked for another 10 years with that, and then just recently uh, retired from that about two years ago. Uh, so that's basically where I'm at with that. Uh, I wrote a book about it called The Alchemy of Combat. And, you know, I'd like to read something from that that, that might give us a, an idea here if, to some of your viewers or I mean, sorry, some of your listeners who may not know um, much about this, uh, although I imagine that most of your listeners are veterans or therapists or friends or relatives of, ther of veterans. So let me, if you don't mind, I'd like to read something from that. No, absolutely. I, I definitely appreciate that. Southeast of Da Nang, Vietnam, surrounded by mountains, a squad of Marines were parked in their armored personnel carrier along a swiftly flowing river. On the other side of the river was a valley of desiccated rice paddies. It was 1967, and the heat waves vibrated up across the valley. In the far distance, the Marine sergeant saw what appeared to be a herd of water buffalo moving rapidly across the valley. He pulled out the binoculars and looked more carefully. Now he saw that the herd was actually a large group of North Vietnamese Army soldiers. The soldiers were running across the open space, but were burdened down with mortars, rockets, and heavy equipment. The sergeant shouted, fuck, man, it's the NVA. Armored personnel carriers have several different types of weapons, including O5 howitzers, 50 caliber and 30 caliber machine guns, grenade launchers, and of course the troops had M16s. Marines are very good shots. The group of NVA was about 100 yards away. The sergeant after accounting for several dead, washed through the, his binoculars as the remnants of the NVA force tried to get to the high ground to set up mortars, only to be killed by the machine guns. There were no survivors. Sergeant, uh, who was in treatment with me, uh, wrote a poem uh, towards about the middle of treatment, which, uh, which really exemplifies to me what this kind of experience can do for you. The name of the uh, poem is Good Friday. At one time, Good Friday meant the coming of the weekend, as did all those Fridays during Lent, those premature hot afternoons during the Stations of the Cross, when I held my breath in laughter after Jimmy Mollard farted so as not to get drug out of the pew by Sister Amadeus pinching my ear and the incense waved about the sanctuary by Father O'Connor became the scent of spring heralding the coming of summer, the release from this tomb of the sixth grade. 
At one time, Good Friday became a dried rice paddy where the air rose in vibration with heat and moisture and fear. And those 60 men across the river, moving over the field, so weighted down with mortars and rockets and weapons, we first thought were water buffalo, now caught with no cover in our sights, and fired round after round and watched them struggle through their last moments. At one time, Good Friday will become a day of atonement, regardless of that mystical Jew crucified for all our sins, where, in the premature summer heat, I will sit somewhere on a patio, tell stories to my grandchildren, and when they ask me about the war, I will not draw details in black and white or paint the colors mutilation. I will not try to describe the smell of death but I will speak in my kindest voice about how cruel we can be to one another, about how very sad war is. So to me, that's um, going through the breakdown uh, that combat or even just the beginning of, of um, being in the military. Uh, the military really uh, understands how to prepare you for what you have to do, which is kill the enemy. And so you, whether you went through boot or basic, uh, that, that was the intention. And from that, they try to determine who is going to be able to do this the best, who is going to be able to actually kill the enemy. And those of you that are able to do that, are, are then put in various positions where that's your duty. That's what you do. That's your job. I remember I had an interview once with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And towards the end of the interview, I, I asked him, I, I said, uh, well, I'm a psychologist, and I work with men who are in the war. What's the best way to help them? And he looked at me, and uh, he talked for a while to his uh, translator about something or other and and then he looked at me and he said okay he said there's two things one is that it's they need to have some sort of spiritual life it really doesn't matter what kind of spiritual life but they need to have a spiritual life and then the second is it's their duty that was their job was to kill the enemy they were doing their duty. Killing is different than murder. It's not the same thing. Now, I, I had understood these sorts of things prior to His Holiness telling me this, but still it was very good to hear him say it. But he could see that, that I sort of knew all that anyway. And so he comes over close to me, and he puts his head against mine, and he says, but you know best. <laughs> And I've often wondered what in the world he meant by that. But the person that I was studying with at the time looked at me once and when I had told him this story and he looked at me with a little disgust and he goes, well, he means use your intuition. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
which I, I agree. I think that is that is one of the uh, the keys. Is I think all therapists understand that. Now, when we were doing those rap groups, uh, something in your book, uh, "Combat That Don't Mean You're Crazy," uh, uh, really uh, hit home for me, uh, and that was where you talked about how difficult it is to go into a therapist's office and making that first step, even though you faced enormous amounts of, um, of sudden death and you witnessed ho- horrible things, uh, still going into that therapist's office is a very, very difficult uh, move uh, towards uh, the unknown. You really don't know what's going to happen. And I remember when we were doing the groups, there was a man who would come and he would stand just outside. He was dressed in a three-piece suit. And he would stand just outside the room that we were all in. The door was open because we had guys constantly going in and out. And uh, so I went over to him. And I said, well, come on in. And he turned around and walked away. <laughs> but then he was back again the next week. And finally he came in. Now, this is a guy who uh, was had been a tank commander in Vietnam and had uh, rappelled down from helicopters firing his M-16 as he came down into hot LZs. And yet he had the most difficult time ever going into, uh, into uh, and this is just a group of guys, right? I mean, it wasn't any kind of formal therapy. It was just a bunch of guys rapping together. And it was very difficult for him to do it. But as it turns out, he later stayed in treatment, I think, well, it must have been over 20 years. And uh, so I got to know him pretty good. Well, I, I really appreciate you especially sharing that excerpt from your book, um, when I first read it, and, and I appreciate, as you alluded to, and we had traded um, books ahead of time, uh, but as I read it, it brought, you know, the hairs in the back of my neck stood on end, um, just because we understand the impact. Um, and, and a lot of different things that you say in the book, I see, again, with, with veterans that I see today. Um, and then I really appreciate you bringing out how hard it is for veterans to come into treatment. Um, you're speaking about someone who is a tank commander in Vietnam, and I wrote that piece about a guy who is an infantryman in Iraq. Um, and and there are themes that sort of come across the uh, uh, come across the years that that they're so very similar. Um, the one that I was uh, that you're specifically referring to, I had a veteran who. Um, sort of no-showed me like three different times or two different times for his intake. When he finally came in, he said, the first time I came, I drove by your office and then I drove away. The second time I came, I parked, I sat in the car for a while, then drove away. This third time is when I finally came in. Uh, and so it's it's almost exactly similar to um, the, the gentleman who couldn't even cross the threshold of an open door um, out of fear of, of what was going on. Um, and it always fascinates me when I speak to someone like you, Larry, who you started before PTSD was even a thing. It wasn't a diagnosis until the early 80s. Um, and yet what you were dealing with with Vietnam veterans, and now I know that you're dealing with um, Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, um, that we're still seeing the same thing 50 years later. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, back then, the guys would go to the VA, and they were told, well, just forget about it. 
just go away. I mean, the World War II guys in Korea, they forgot about it, which, of course, isn't true at all. But uh, that's, how, that's how the Department of Veterans Affairs was treating them. So they would come in to me in the vet center. Now, the vet centers were set up by a group of uh, veterans uh, and uh, were staffed primarily by former veterans. I was sort of what, what they called me the normie. Uh, and, uh, but because of my background, I was able to, to uh, organize the office in such a way that I think we were pretty effective. And I think the vet centers still are, are very effective. It was completely free. And at that point, at, at that time, uh, there wasn't even a requirement that you had to have been in combat, just an era that was, was okay too, because of course, if you had been in country, uh, whether you were in combat or not, I mean, there were all kinds of things that happened. There was no such thing as a safe place. That's very true. Of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan too, all those, all those places are, are your, your life is, um, is in danger at every single minute. And so this whole idea of hypervigilance has been a difficulty. And this is one of the, the key issues here is that lessons learned in combat really aren't ever forgotten. And there's, they can be so important. They do not have to be a symptom. They don't have to be a disability. They can be a help to the veteran. Uh, hypervigilance while it's very taxing and takes a lot of energy and um, makes you very tired and irritable and easily angered, nevertheless, it can be helpful because you're aware, you're, you're keeping stock. And the worst thing is to then feel badly about having been aware. Appreciate being aware. Look, as you know, one of the biggest issues for veterans combat veterans in particular, is trying to move back in to civilian life. Civilian, we don't know as civilians. We don't know, and most of us don't care. Uh, okay, you went and did that. That's great. Thanks a lot. Or, God, why would you go and do that? But regardless of the response you get, we don't understand, we don't know, and we don't care. We go to some movies. We read some books. And we think we know. We don't. I've listened to literally thousands of veterans and uh, gone through many, many groups and treated many individual uh, veterans. And I don't know. I mean, I have an idea, probably better than the normal population, but I didn't go and do that. So I really don't know what that's like. And so for me, the issue has always been, teach me, tell me about your experience, what you had, what happened to you. And I would start, I, I'm fairly structured in how I would do it. And to me, the establishing of the relationship is really important. First of all, they'd come in expecting, I don't know, a lot of guys, they have their ideas, as, as we just uh, were talking about, about what treatment is going to be like, or, or it's just, they don't know, they don't. So they'd come in and we would try to sort of settle down and I'd tell them a little something about myself and so on. So establishing, as we call it, rapport, right? Well, it takes a long time to do it that way. So I would start with their childhood, something very non-threatening 
and uh, maybe it would be a safe place for them to begin. For some guys, it wasn't. Some guys had really awful childhoods, and it, it was not a safe place for them. But nevertheless, we would work on that until we found it. And then, you know, go through adolescence, what was it like in high school and so on, and, and then the military. What was basic training like? How did you do in the rifle range? What was the marching like? Did you do grenade throwing? How about the pugil sticks? And uh, all those things. And they would say, nobody's ever asked me about this. No one has ever talked. I've never talked about basic training or AIT. And uh, so then we'd go and, okay, how did you get to the theater of operations? How did you go? How did you get there? Okay, most of the guys, you're flown there. And so you come in. Okay, what's the first thing? You remember when you got off the plane, what was it like? Vietnam, it was the heat and the smell. And in Baghdad, uh, it was just the uh, enormous amount of noise and the smells. Uh, I mean, you can tell me more about that than anybody else because that's where you were. Uh, were you stationed in Baghdad? I was. Um, uh, I say, unfortunately, you know, this idea of um, Vietnam veterans going back to the battlefields. Um, I can see myself going back to Afghanistan. Um, you're not getting me back into Baghdad. Um, and, and some of it was just, as you say, um, the very dry heat and the smell. Um, and, uh, and really it's just knowing what Baghdad historically has been and seeing what it is now. Is, uh, it, it was frustrating and heartbreaking and depressing. And in Vietnam, they didn't have a weapon yet. Uh, they didn't get a weapon until they got in country. And uh, usually the next day they were issued weapons. But then maybe even on that very same day, they were then flown out by helicopter to uh, the, uh, the base that they were going to be operating out of. Uh, and I know that you guys had FOBs. And uh, <laughs> the people who, who were at the FOBs who stayed there, you called them FOBs. In, uh, in Vietnam, they were called RIMPs. Have you heard that one? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so you know, you know what that stands for. The... And, of course, uh, in Vietnam, one of the things that I think, that I really believe, and this is actually what the Vietnamese say also, that uh, was the biggest problem uh, for us in Vietnam was DROS, Date of Expected Return from Overseas. And uh, everybody got a year. Marines got 13 months. Uh, and you could be in the middle of a firefight out in a rice paddy. And I've worked with guys who this happened to them. And the helicopter comes down and goes, okay, come on. <laughs> Whatever your name is, you know, Casey, Casey, come on, it's your turn. Okay, so you get up and you go and get on the helicopter and two days later, you could be in Oakland on the streets with nobody telling you anything about And suddenly, wow. And guys told me that when they would leave on the plane, they'd look back at the, at the country and they'd say, what was that? What just happened? And it would be like it had been a dream. And they look now and... Still, in Iraq and Afghanistan vets, too, they, they look at what company reports, and they read all those, and they say, it did happen. There, yes, that, that is how I remember it happening. 
but they have to have that because they don't trust their memory. They don't trust how it happened. And I, actually, that's really interesting to me because I would see guys in groups who, as it turned out, would have been at the same place at the same time, not really have known each other because, you know, these are fairly large groups. And uh, they would have had completely different experiences, uh, even though they'd been at the same place at the same time. Uh, now, the uh, when I started seeing, um, first of all, the Persian Gulf guys, uh, that was a lot of crap, you know, about that. Uh, I mean, the country really doesn't, I don't think they understand what happened with Persian Gulf. Uh, because uh, while we didn't suffer a lot of casualties, still, I mean, like this one fellow who was in the tanks and uh, the tanks, you know, they they boogied on on over to um, uh, I forgot the Kuwait, and uh, and they could see the Iraqis coming out of Kuwait, and they parked what was it three miles away because that's what I think the range on on our tanks was, and their tanks only had two miles, so they could park three miles away, and they blasted the hell out of that highway. I think I think that you guys have a name for it. I've forgotten what it was. The Highway of Death. And there you go. And uh, they blew everything all to hell, and uh, then they went into the city, and of course they had to go past all that stuff. And, oh, yes, I remember now, too, that one fellow told me that uh, on their way uh, we had done a carpet bomb on, on some group, and there was a huge number of casualties there. They had to um, dig. They got earth, big earth movers, I guess, in there, and they dug a big pit and pushed everybody into it. But then some of the big honchos said, oh, no, no, they're facing the wrong way. They have to face towards Mecca. So, of course, this guy had to dig them back up and then turn them around and face Mecca and then put earth back over them. I don't know if that part's true, but sounds actually sounds reasonable. Oh, yes. the military. Yeah, it does. And, <laughs> and just sort of some of the, the asinine um, uh, arbitrary rules that just come down that, that make no sense. And, and a lot of people, as you said, somebody who hadn't been there, they would shake your head and you'd say, there's no possible way that could happen. Um, and yet, you know, somebody for me who has been there, um, I, I it seems plausible. And, and of course, listening to as many veterans as you have, um, you say the same thing. I really appreciate how you identify that, um, you know, having never been, um, a veteran yourself, you can't possibly know. That puts me in mind of, uh, something that Jonathan Shea said in his book, Achilles in Vietnam, uh, that he said that he's not a native speaker of vet, right? He, he did not, he didn't serve. And he said, there's no way I can get all the way there. He said, I can get 95% or 99 or whatever he said, but that 1% gap is, is still very significant. Um, and I kind of liken it to, I spent six years in Germany in my 22 years, um, and I could go move to Germany. I could live in Germany. I could become fluent in their language and even pick up an accent, so to speak, but I would never be truly German because I was not brought up or, or, or lived in that culture. Um, and so there are clinicians like you who take the time to get as far as you possibly can and understand that you'll never get there all the way. Um, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of veterans think that, well, I can't ever go to a civilian who's never been in combat because they don't understand. Um, 
have you had that experience sometimes with some of the vets you've worked with? No, I know. I know that's a, a lot of people ask me that. And actually a lot of vets ask me that, uh, but no, I've never had that. Uh, actually most of the guys, well, all the guys that I've seen over the years, uh, have said things like, wow, he says, I'm, I'm really glad you were never there. I'm glad you weren't in the military because I was, I was worried I was going to have to see some sort of gnarly special forces guy who would just look at me and say, you didn't see shit, man. Uh, you know, you, you should have had done what I did. How come you're such a pussy? And, uh, and of course I don't, you know, I, for me, I, you know, I've just gone, I haven't been, uh, going to Iraq or, or going to Afghanistan is, is pretty significant as far as I'm concerned. Now, uh, one of the things that, that mystifies me about Afghanistan, uh, and this, I, I just, I really, well, it's, I think it's probably pretty more similar to Vietnam than Iraq might have been. Uh, the guys I saw from Afghanistan, I, I saw a variety of, of guys, um, and I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to get too um, specific about them. But this one fellow that I saw, everybody in his squad committed suicide. Everybody. The sergeant hung himself in the barracks. Uh, and this young man was, um, the last time I saw him, he was, he was busy drinking himself to death. Uh, uh, now, I'm not sure what it was about. And I asked him, uh, what was it about Afghanistan? Uh, and he, he he said, essentially, well, you know, they use civilians. You can't tell. Well, that, that's true. Iraq and and Vietnam were, were like that also. But now here's a story. Now, suicide, of course, after every single war, there are enormous numbers of suicides uh, amongst the combat veterans. World War II was no different. World War II, uh, you know, the, the deal was um, that you were there for the duration. Uh, and so you didn't know, you didn't know when you were going to get back. And so they had a lot of uh, battlefield breakdowns uh, in Vietnam. Hey, just keep it together for a year. And you even got a week off. You got that R and R and, you know, you just combat fatigue, <laughs> you know, you're a little tired. And so a little rest and relaxation will be fine. Uh, but uh, in Afghanistan, uh, I forget how long the tour of duty was, uh, but, uh, and you got deployed, uh, you, you were deployed multiple times, right? I was, um, one 15 month tour in Iraq, um, one 12 month in Afghanistan, another nine month in Afghanistan, and then, um, North Africa for a short one at the end of my career. But yeah. Wow. That's very impressive. What do you think? I mean, Oh, wait, before, before, before we get into that, let me tell you something, because I want your listeners to know something. Some of those guys who are listening to this out there might be at their wit's end, and they might be struggling. And so I want to tell them something. Just because you die doesn't mean that everything ends. Now, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Obviously, I don't know for sure. But this is how I understand it. This is my belief system. And there's an old story about this uh, student. He's a spiritual 
feet. And he goes to see his teacher. And he asks the teacher, he says, can you show me heaven? And the teacher goes, sure. Go sit in that room. So the kid goes and sits in the room, and nothing happens. Nothing. So he comes back and says, well, can you show me hell? Sure. Go sit in this other room. So he goes and he sits in the other room. <laughs> nothing happens. And so he goes back and he tells the teacher, he says, well, look, where were all the virgins in the first room, and where were all the demons in the second room? And the teacher laughs and laughs, and he goes, oh, those, those, well, you have to bring those with you. That means what you got in your head now, you may, you may well carry that with you. And you don't have any more options. Or if you do, uh, they may take a long time to work out. So it's much better to hang in here now. What you know is, what the devil that you know is better than the devil that you don't know. And so work with us. Be with us. There's so many of us that are willing and able and very good at helping. Treatment is very effective, as you know. It's a very powerful force that can help everybody integrate, really, things that you didn't think you could ever integrate. Look, here's a, here's a possibility. Here's a theoretical concept. Piaget, he had assimilation and accommodation. Piaget was this great French psychologist, Jean Piaget. And he worked out a really wonderful developmental uh, process uh, for uh, kids. So, okay. So, depending upon your belief systems, if your belief system is big enough, you can just assimilate. You just take in this new information. So people got blown up in front of you. Your belief system can cope with that. So you bring it in and it fits within your belief system. However, if your belief system is not adequate to take in that new information, that huge trauma that you've just experienced, or you see your best friend suddenly shot, uh, then you have to accommodate it. That means you either change the information or you change your belief systems. It's much easier to change the information than it is to change your beliefs. So what we work on, but if you just change the information, then you're going to get, then that's sort of the beginning of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, then things become a disorder because they don't fit. And so you keep trying to keep them away and trying to change them. And it's just not going to work. It never works. So the best way to do it it's to change belief systems. And how do you change belief systems? Uh, and that's the whole process of treatment is, from my perspective, is how do you do that? And I see it as a sort of a, uh, I talk about it as an alchemical process, but alchemy is just a metaphor. And, you know, people used to think of alchemy as you changing some impure metal like lead into a pure metal like gold. Well, that's very true in terms of the human being. We change this sort of, uh, aspect of ourselves that isn't working well in terms of our life into something that works more effectively. And that's the alchemy that we perform. And you guys, you guys have a great advantage in that because you've gone through the first stage of the breaking down of how you think about yourself. And you know that as civilians, we don't know. We don't really understand 
that our way of thinking about ourselves really isn't adequate. It doesn't really encompass what you know has to happen in order to encompass reality of this physical life. So you've got the first stage. You've got what they call the solve, the, dis- the dissolving. There was a great psychiatrist uh, many years ago, R.D. Lang, who said, a breakdown sometimes is a breakthrough. And that's really what uh, you're, you're working at, is making this events that, that you keep trying to push out as something that can help you, that can really, you can work with, that you can use it in your life. And that's what's called post-traumatic growth. So that instead of uh, being a disorder, you allow it to keep yourselves improving in your emotional experiences and in your ability. I mean, you look at people like John McCain or Bob Carey. Uh, Bob Carey was a Medal of Honor winner in Vietnam. Uh, He was a SEAL, and uh, he lost a leg. Now, I got to know Bob pretty good. Uh, He lived here in Santa Barbara for for quite a while. Really an incredible guy, as you might imagine. He became a governor of Nebraska and then a senator from Nebraska. He ran for uh, president uh, the first time that Clinton ran. And he, he said, I remember he said, well, I said, you have to understand about Clinton. He's a really good liar. <laughs> and so I, I asked Bob, I said, well, you know, you, you don't seem like you have any disorder. How did you do it? And uh, he said, well, he said, I don't know. I, he says, uh, I, I don't know if I have the disorder or not. I, I Sometimes I think I do. He says, but if I don't, well, he said when he came back, he, he, of course, was in a hospital for quite a while. And he said his mother came and visited him every day that he was in the hospital. And that she demanded that he tell her everything that happened to him in Vietnam. And he said if anything kept him from having Vietnam be a disorder, it was that experience. Someone who loved him so much that she wanted to hear it. She wanted to have it as being as part of her life also. And that's such a beautiful thing. That's incredible. It is. And, it, it absolutely is. I, I, it's something that, that you just said. It, it really just struck a chord in me um, that it is an incomplete transformational process. Um, the way that I explain to my veterans is we were one thing before we joined the military, of course, right? This, uh, you know, regular American kid, whatever that meant for each of us growing up. Um, and then we entered into this different culture in which we became aware of other things. We became aware of, um, like you said, it's almost in, in, you know, that the story that you read can be allegorical where it shifted from a herd of buffalo to human beings I wouldn't have killed the buffalo, but I did kill the human beings um, that that this awareness is awakened in us to things. Um, but if we stop there and we don't work through even greater awareness of why it happened, why we did this. And that's where I see um, um, therapy being able to help is to help people understand, help veterans understand the why behind their what. Um, and and it's that interrupted transformational process, that incomplete process that 
develops into the disorder. And by completing that process, in whatever way that veteran finds a way to complete that process, that's what leads to post-traumatic growth. Does that sound accurate? Well, I'd say you're right on. Absolutely. That's great. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who got it as, as quickly and as well as you did. That, that's, that was excellent, Dwayne. I want to read another poem, if you don't mind. Uh, and this, this was from a, another Marine sergeant who has since passed on. Uh, and he became a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, John Muir, who was, uh, I think, the great-grandson of the actual John Muir. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned uh, Jonathan Shea, uh, and I, I know Jonathan sort of. I haven't seen him for, for many years, but when that book, Achilles in Vietnam, came out, it has on the, the cover, uh, and John, Jonathan had sent me a, a copy that was um, prior to it being published, and I showed it to to. Um, John Muir and John said that's me and and he's he's one of the little white guys that's standing there with his hand out holding back uh, I think a, a few of the African American guy and then there's the African American guy on the ground um, and they'd just gone through a hellacious bombing and uh, John Muir had um, he'd been a sergeant well he was a sergeant and uh he had, uh, they'd been getting rocketed and shelled uh, by the NBA for, for quite a while, and uh, which is what, how that picture was taken. But um, he was going to go off with his squad out, out into um, trying to get the NBA to stop, of course. And his squad got on the helicopter, and a lieutenant pulled John off and said, uh, said no, no, Sergeant, i got to talk to you about something. You can take a letter, letter helicopter. Well, okay, so that helic- helicopter that his squad was on went up in the air and rocket hit and everybody was killed. Uh, and so John uh, became what's known as a berserker. Uh, and and Moore's many times, uh, there's a guy who just does that. He, he forgets he doesn't care. He doesn't care about whether he gets killed or not. It doesn't matter to him. No and pain. He's going to charge. No, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can, he can get hit several times. It really doesn't stop him. He just keeps coming. And uh, actually, some of the guys told me that uh, the VC were like that. that they tie off parts of their body so that if they were hit in that part, they could keep going because they wouldn't be able to feel it as much. And um, that, was, that was pretty awesome. And so, John, uh, that's, that was when that picture was taken. And here's a poem that, that John wrote. It was dry. She was dry. She seemed brittle as parchment, ready to flake to dust and blow away. Once it had been a nice house, now it didn't stand out. Just another thatched rough bamboo hut. Standing out can be dangerous. The concrete pad of the old house remained to feed her memories. As she stirred a cauldron of rice, her eyes slipped to hide. She watched us. We slipped out of the trees, quiet as the ghost that haunted her village. She stirred and watched. I looked around and looked again. I tried to see, really see. I saw the rice, too much rice. She watched and stirred. 
It was hot. I was hot. It was dry. I was dry. She was cooking too much rice. She was feeding the VC at night. Vietnamese woman, ancient faces, American boy, 19, and the chasm yawned before us, then disappeared with a look. I decided not to take her prisoner, not to burn her house. Instead, I pulled down a banana leaf and held it out for her to feed me some of the VC rice. The rest lined up and took some too. We sat, watchful, and ate the VC rice. Then we slipped back into the trees, quiet as the ghost that haunted her village. It was good rice. So that was the beginning for John when he wrote that poem of really transitioning in, into a whole new space. He went back to school and got a master's degree and uh, became a really very successful high school teacher. And uh, then eventually, though, Agent Orange claimed him and he passed out about uh, four or five years ago. See, and that, that puts me in mind of the parallels. And you you had just um, talked about John McCain and, um, you know, Bob Carey, who became these these great leaders of men, right? Um, and then you just talk about John Muir, who became a high school teacher, right? Um, when, and we talk, you talked briefly about the, um, the World War II generation. You know, we hear all of the statistics. They created Supreme Court justices and doctors and presidents, but my grandfathers came back, one became a mechanic and one became a tailor, right? We, we slip back into our lives. We don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be these great leaders of men. Um, we just go back and maybe pick up what we were doing before, or we, we go back and we try something new. Um, but then this idea of if we don't, if we don't put to rest or if we don't process and there's all these fancy words, but if we don't in some way, like you said, assimilate and complete that transformation, um, then it's going to be that much more difficult to pick up and move on and be a high school teacher like John was. Yes. uh, Yes, that's right. And, And that's our job. That's our job to help facilitate the complete transformation. And, Everything is arrayed against that. I think, excuse me, the whole society, almost all of our culture, doesn't agree with that. <laughs> they say it is helping the poor veteran, and it's really the other way around. Is the veteran helping the poor civilian? Uh, nobody is ever going to agree with that, except for maybe possibly veterans, of course. But civilians, by and large, won't. They will be just astonished. Like I used to have all the guys that I saw from Iraq, they all wanted to go back. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be here. And, you know, when I saw that uh, one film, what was it about the guy, uh, Hurt Locker? And uh, when he was in the supermarket, that was such a great scene. And he's staring at this incredible abundance of ridiculous amounts of food. And just it was just like it was it was so re- disgusting to him in many ways that he had to get back. 
And so people would ask me, they'd say, well, why would anybody want to go back? Everybody's always really shocked that a veteran would want to go back to this horrible place. And I'd say, well, look, you know, uh, what do you have when you're there in Iraq? Uh, I mean, you've got this huge force with you. You're armed to the teeth. Uh, you've got all these incredible weapons at your disposal. If somebody gives you a hard time, you can kill them. And uh, what do you got when you come back here? What's available for you? You have no power for the most part. And what are you going to do? You're going to stock shelves in a grocery store or some other job that's almost soul killing. What are you going to do? Of course you want to go back. I mean, that's where all the meaning and purpose is. Who's the fellow who wrote the book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning? Uh, I met that guy. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, And uh, he was a, uh, a journalist. Who had been? He hadn't been in the in the regular fights. He'd been down in Central America and all those sort of guerrilla fights. And uh, he's a great guy. I really liked him. Uh, but he had some issues. Uh, and for example, when he was uh, going to, he wanted to get back into the country for some reason. They wouldn't let him because of some political reason. He jumped over the ticket counter and stabbed the guy with a fountain pen, <laughs> and then they had to pull him off. Uh, so he had some issues uh, based upon uh, what had happened to him. And he and I were standing there talking, and he was signing books at the time. And uh, there's somebody else in the in the line, and they say, they're complaining, and he goes off on them, starts yelling at them. Uh, so, you know, this, this affects, I don't care who you are, how well prepared you are, really, it's going to change you. And uh, well, it may change you, and and if you can deal with it, then then you'll get better. You'll you'll become um, much more aware and a greater person uh, amongst us. And so we need we need all of you to be able to complete this and to get through it and become who you need to be. Okay. Yeah. And, no, you yeah. know, I don't. I don't want to put too much on everybody because they have enough just dealing with what they're dealing with. But if you keep dealing with it, if you keep working with it, believe me, believe me, you'll come out so much better and you'll be so much more effective in your life uh, that it will amaze you and your family will love you to pieces. And so will the rest of the country. I I think that is uh, absolutely accurate. Um, the, The idea of, because that's what veterans want to do, right? That's, we want to serve, we we want to serve with those we served with, you know, we, you know, some of the most lifelong, the whole, you know, the old army buddy is almost a cliche and it's a cliche because it's, it's entirely accurate. Um, but if we don't complete that transformation, then, um, ultimately we're not going to be the best us that we could possibly be. And it goes back to your story is if we don't complete that transformation, then we're going to go into the room with demons in our heads um, instead of once we get done with the transformation, we'll be able to go to the room with virgins in our head or, or whatever version <laughs> of, of, of heaven that there is. Right. And so, and, and this was what fascinates me is we have the power to be able to, um, transform ourselves to be able to do this. I really appreciate it. I know that this is something again, and you warned me and, and I am right there with you. We could talk about this 
all day. Um, and, and there's things, there's things that the whole idea of purpose and meaning and existentialism that we haven't even gotten back, gotten to. So, um, I may, I'm going to have to have you back on the show, uh, to go through some of those other things, but, um, any last words or any thoughts you, you think you'd like to leave with the audience? Oh, well, um, here's something to look at. Who do you most admire throughout history? Preferably somebody that you don't know personally. Uh, I get a lot of responses from this. Like people will say Woody Allen or, or, um, you know, somebody, somebody else like that. Uh, the most uh, inspiring person that you can think of, uh, who is that? And think about who that is. Okay, you're looking at yourself. You wouldn't recognize what's in that person if you didn't have it in you. What is it about that person that you admire so much? That's you. That's yourself. You're seeing someone else who's better able to be you than you are. It's not a matter of copying or role-playing or anything like that. It's not that superficial. This goes right to the core of who we are as a person, who we are as an individual. And you guys have a step up. You've started that whole process, and you've got to keep doing it. But and the, the way that you can do that, look at somebody that you most admire. And then realize that quality that you see in them is in you. Otherwise, you'd never see it. You wouldn't recognize it. You wouldn't know about it. People would tell you about it. And you'd shrug your shoulders. You wouldn't know what they meant. But because you know what they mean, that's you. That is, that's magic. I mean, literally, as you were talking, and I, I went through the exercise myself and, and listening, and uh, the person that came to mind is Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and when you said that what I perceive to have been in him, obviously, you know, not having been alive then, but, um, one thing that Teddy Roosevelt was very well known for is boldness, um, and decisiveness of action, right? Um, even if there was an obstacle, um, that he would move forward in, in boldness in spite of that. Uh, and I recognize that that you're absolutely right. And when you said it, I, I mean, I literally felt uplifted because I do feel that I value that in myself, the boldness and decisive of action um, of, of stepping out in the space of doubt. Um, I hadn't ever considered it that way. And you're spot on. You hit the mark dead on. Wonderful. I, I so much appreciate hearing that, Dwayne. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing for you to say. Uh, the only thing that might help uh, might keep guys from doing that. What you just did is that sense of anxiety that we have about ourselves, that I'm not capable of having that quality. That is the only a lack of, of confidence in oneself is the destroyer of that quality. And so what the military did for you was to give you that confidence in yourself. That's one of the things that they really helped you with was to do that, to bring that out in you so that you could 
I move on forward as you move in, into the civilian life, never be becoming a civilian. You'll never be a civilian. And you're a veteran. And uh, that's a very important thing. No, I, I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate your time. Uh, if the listeners want to want to um, connect with you, um, maybe uh, obviously um, uh, to find your book, The Alchemy of Combat, um, how would they go about getting in contact with you? Uh, well, I have a uh, website, uh, the uh, Trauma Recovery Institute. Uh, so it's traumarecoveryinstitute.org, uh, which is a nonprofit that I set up to uh, uh, help veterans who who didn't have were who weren't eligible for treatment with the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, and uh, so I that's but now I think uh, the DVA has uh, changed their requirements so that even uh, I think uh, other than honorable uh, you can still uh, become qualified for that, uh, or they can uh, email me. Uh, I'm happy to give out my email L Decker. Uh, at coxcox.net. My book is on Amazon, uh, or they can get it from the publisher, Omega Publications. Uh, And I guess that would be the two best ways to uh, contact me. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I will make sure to to get all of that in the show notes, um, your website, your email, and then the link to the books on both Omega and, and on Amazon. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, Well, I very much appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. As I mentioned in the show, I always appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with a recognized expert in the field of veteran mental health, especially someone with as extensive a service as Dr. Decker. Consider the concept of alchemical transformation as it relates to veteran mental health. Merriam-Webster defines alchemy in two ways, a medieval chemical science and speculative philosophy aiming to achieve the transmutation of the base metals into gold, the discovery of a universal cure for a disease, and the discovery of a means of indefinitely prolonging life. This is what we think of when we think of alchemy, turning lead into gold. There's a second definition that meets our needs when it comes to the change in someone after they return from combat or leave from the military, a power or process that changes or transforms something in a mysterious or impressive way. Coming from someone who's gone through this transformation himself, it's often unknown, mysterious, and it's certainly impressive. The challenges in post-military life, however, happens when the transformation is not complete. I mentioned in the show about how understanding the why is as important as acknowledging the what. We know what happened to us, the deployments, the experiences. Sometimes we can't get it out of our head. The question that we don't ask, or if we do ask, that we have trouble getting the answers to by ourselves is why we reacted in a certain way, or why something happened how it did. Once we discover the why, come to terms with it, and fit it within our belief system, then we can have the complete transformation. If we get stuck on what, that's post-traumatic stress. If we resolve the why, that's post-traumatic growth. I encourage you to check out Dr. Decker's book, which I've linked to in the show notes, to be able to hear more from him on the subject. 
Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST 099. While you're there, share the link with someone that you think may enjoy it. While you're checking it out, consider dropping a rating or review on the show. It helps for the show to rank higher in searches. You can find out how to share feedback on the podcast player you use by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash platforms. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I'm a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode. It's our 100th episode, and I have a special guest. Special to me, and I would venture to say that he would agree that he's pretty unique himself. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.